This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Territory Story Podcast. Uh, It's Leon Logan-Nathan here. I'm flying solo today because my co-host, Peter Gowers, is actually literally flying. He's flying up here to Darwin from Melbourne. So, uh, yep, he's on his way back to the land uh, of milk and honey. And uh, we'll obviously have him on the podcast again shortly. And I think we will be uh, running a few of our podcasts in the next little while uh, live and uh, in person. So that'll be great. In the meantime, I do have a special guest uh, for you tonight. Um, His name is Ted Steele. He's actually the uncle of a guest that we had on recently, Graham Steele. You may remember Graham from um, the uh, sunny shores of Los Angeles in Beverly Hills. He uh, he's obviously got a famous father in Roger Steele, uh, but he's also got a famous uncle in uh, Ted Steele. So um, I'm looking forward to this chat with Ted. Uh, Ted uh, um, is a scientist, a a retired scientist, but he's still very active. And uh, he has some very interesting um, observations on a number of things, and I'm looking forward to unpacking some of that for you. So without further ado, Ted Steele, welcome to the Territory Story Podcast. Thank you very much, um, Leon. Uh, it's a great honour to be talking from my to my hometown and my roots of my life. Yeah, I think I told you in an email that I, wherever I go or whatever I do in the world, I, for some reason, I feel I'm very territorial in every interaction I have. And uh, I don't know, don't know what that says, but if you're born and bred in the territory, you, you simply can't get it out of your the way you behave to other people. Well, that's uh, it gets you into a lot of trouble sometimes. <laughs> well, Ted, where are you now? I'm in Melbourne. Yeah. Okay. And what's the temperature there right now? Well, it's heading towards ten degrees. It was less than that last night, and we had snow in the foothills around Melbourne for the last two days. So it's quite cold here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how long have you lived in Melbourne? Well, I've lived here for about five years, yeah. uh, but I've also lived and worked in many other parts of the world. Uh, Five years all up in Perth, um, 17 years in Wollongong, four or, f- four or five years in Canberra, nine years in Adelaide, my formative years in Darwin when I was 17, um, in Canada for three years, in um, the United Kingdom for a year and a half. Uh, so I've... Not been everywhere, but I've been a lot of places, yeah, and I've lived so, in a lot of places, yes. So it must be in the steel blood because uh, young um, Graham yes. also yeah. had the bug and has done a fair bit of travelling and living abroad. He is. He's a world citizen, Graham, isn't he? He really <laughs> understands the world. It probably weighs better than I do, actually. Yeah. He's probably more successful than me, yes. Well, we have to thank Graham uh, for, for the introduction to you, Ted. Uh, he was uh, He's a big fan of his uncle, I have to say. Mm. So um, let's start with your uh, your territory story. Let, you, you said you were born in the Territory. Uh, is that right? Yes, born in the Territory in 1948 and left the Territory 
in, 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 in retrospect, I left coming back, but that's when I left, it was in 1967. Um, so I left, I had all my childhood in the 50s. I remember growing up, I was, I was, born, I, I was born at Darwin Hospital and grew up at Larrakia on the, on the Larrakia Army Base. And, uh, and, then, and then we spent the next 10 years or so of my life uh, in Berrimah, Berrimah Road, opposite the old Qantas base, for those who have memories going back 50 years. And, uh, and uh, then Nycliffe, lived at Nycliffe with my mother after my mother and father separated and divorced and other big problems associated with trying to be pioneers in the Northern Territory. When I, when, you know, when I look back on all their problems, it was all to do with trying to make it in the Northern Territory in the 1950s in a very difficult environment. And um, then, um, so I went to Darwin High School. Oh, sorry, I went to Darwin Infant School at Frog Hollow, Darwin Primary School in Cavanagh Street and High School when it was at Cavanagh Street and then, then the high school at Bullocky Point when it was first built and I spent all my rest of my high school years there until about 66, 67. Then to Adelaide University. Uh, and for nine years in Adelaide, that's where I did my, my um, Bachelor of Science, uh, my Teachers College certificate, which I never pursued. And then um, my PhD at the University of Adelaide. And then from there, I went to Canberra. This is in 75, 76. 77, and then to Canada. I was a postdoctoral fellow at the Ontario Cancer Institute for about three years, to about 1980, and then, then to the United Kingdom for a year or two at the, uh, as a welcome research fellow, and then back to Canberra in 81, 82, 83 to 84 as a uh, postdoctoral research fellow at the John Curtin School of Medical Research at the ANU. And then with a, uh, uh, a young family or starting to emerge as a young family, we had to, had to get some, some, you know, some stability. And um, I um, took up a position at the Wollongong University in 85. And I stayed at Wollongong University for the next oh, 17 or so years. But it looks like a standard progression, but actually my life has been very, very turbulent uh, in the sense that my scientific work has led me into danger zones which most other scientists would not enter. And I can say that now looking back, I'm 73, or going on 73, I can look back on all the ups and downs in my life and all of the major, major events in my life can be associated with major shifts in my thinking about the world and particularly about the fundamentals, the, the scientific fundamentals in both science and in biology and medicine. And they, uh, they cause major problems for me. Now, all of those battles which I had to fight, I've won them all, but at great cost. And I'm not looking for sympathy when I say that. I'm just saying that if you get involved in major paradigm shifts or major tectonic shifts in thinking, your life is not going to be a simple one. And, uh, and whilst I made some pretty important enemies, 
that's actually a measure of how big the problem is, actually, the type of enemies you attract. But it's also I made a lot of friends and a lot of supporters and people who helped me at different stages. And they were all very significant. And the the turbulence of all the different stages of my scientific career were took their toll even on those relationships because not everyone is as, is as committed as I am to what I perceive to be important fundamental truths in science. So because of that non-compromising part of my character, it's led to those sort of schisms, but I still have many, many friends despite that. <laughs> and, and the fact that I'm still going, I can still smile means that uh, I don't hold bear any, bear any grudges really after all these, all these years. Now, I've talked in general terms. I haven't spoken in specific terms here. And if you want to get into some of the specifics, I can. But uh, uh, I've spoken in general terms because then you can get a, a feel for, you know, the way things have gone. Um, now, my advice to a young scientist would be if you love science and if you love the truth, then you've got to be then prepared for a tough ride because objective truth in science conflicts often with our other values in our life, particularly when it comes to things like associations to do with one's career and therefore political consequences. You know, they, can, they have knock-on effects. Well, I decided, and I must have got it from my mother and my father, I think, I decided not to compromise when it came to a fork in the road. And that led to serious schisms. But I won the battles, by the way. Uh, at the time, it didn't look as if I was going to. In fact, I had many friends who looked at me in shock. Oh, my brother in particular, Roger, is a great friend of mine and a great supporter, but he often thinks, how did Ted pull that off? <laughs> or, or, or why did he go into it in the first place? But anyway, uh, I'm speaking in general terms now. I'm not really speaking in specifics because the specifics, when we start talking about the specifics of the scientific journey from a boy from Darwin, uh, asking questions about the world, you'll see why they were turbulent. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, you've given us a great pre I want to go back and, I mean, there's lots of text more here, mm. but I really want to go back and talk about your parents yes. because I want to know why they came to Darwin and when they came to Darwin. Yes. My parents, my father was in the army. He, he grew up, he went into the army in the 20s and 30s because of the depression setting in and the need to actually help his family out because life was extremely difficult. For my Where father. was he born? In Melbourne. Right. And he, he, his family, I could go on about his family, but my father was in the army, but he was also a free spirit. And like many people in, the, in that era, in the 30s and the 40s, he was basically a communist. And that meant that, <laughs> yeah, 
and many were, and and that meant that that came into conflict with his role in the army. And I think that actually crimped his career in the army because they knew that what his political views were. So he couldn't be allowed to be an officer. He could be a warrant officer, but not an officer. So I suppose that was one of the things that upset my father a bit. But in retrospect, it was not surprising. But he was a he was a he was he was a he was a he was he was a surveyor. He built many of the the roads during the Second World War and the bridges in Papua New Guinea during the war. In, in, the, in the territory, after the businesses to do with market gardening didn't really succeed, they were, they were, they were successful up to a point, but they didn't really succeed, uh, he returned to being a surveyor and he did a lot of the surveying of, of Groot Island before that island was developed as a, a mining operation. He did a lot of other surveying operations throughout the territory. And uh, he, was a, um, he was an amateur astronomer. He had a lot of scientific knowledge. I, I remember that as, as a young boy. He had. He used to take me aside and whisper stories about the stars. And I can remember him being, if a, if a slight tear comes to mind, because I'm still thinking about the old man, you know, because it's many years ago since he went, but I can remember him um, being so passionate about it about just the fundamental ideas of, of the universe. For example, is the universe infinite, going on forever, without any beginning or end, or did it begin with a big, a big bang? So he introduced me to that before I was five. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking about those things. Yes. A young boy. Yes. They're, you know, they're, they're actually quite fundamental ideas. My mother was uh, um, she was she loved my father attracted to his radical nature I think because she came from a Catholic family in Queensland and of course they ostracized her when they discovered she was marrying Bob Steele uh, but my mother was uh, she was a teacher she was a brilliant tennis player she represented Queensland as a, a young as a young woman, she played with all the great tennis players of that era. Uh, you know, before they, while they were becoming uh, you know famous, like John Bromwich and Adrian Quist and all that men of that era, the thirties and forties. So she was a champion tennis player, and she came from a, a family that survived the depression by building by making tennis rackets. Um, so uh, the, the Heffernan family in Melbourne, uh, in uh, uh, Brisbane, uh, an Irish Catholic family, survived the Depression by making tennis rackets. And those Heffernan rackets were quite famous in the 40s and 50s. There were still a few around. In any, but anyway, she was also a teacher. She was a, a brilliant teacher. She loved her children. She tried, she tried to do the best she possibly could in the harsh environment in the Territory to... How did they meet? How did your mother Ah, yeah, how did they meet? I don't know fully how they met, but they must have met in Sydney just as the war was ending. My mother was a, an interpreter for the, for the Dutch intelligence in, in the Dutch East Indies up in, uh, uh, in Hollandia. And I don't know exactly how they met, but they met in Sydney as the war was ending. My so your mother could speak other languages? Yes, oh, yeah. My mother, my mother was, she, she loved other languages. She could speak French and Dutch, Spanish. Yes, yeah, she loved languages. She tried to communicate that to me, and I, 
I never fully, you know, flourished in that regard. But she was also an, elo- an elocution teacher. She was, she, uh, she prepared the children, my, myself and my two sisters, she prepared us in our formative years through the 50s and 60s for all the Estedfords that were the really big thing in Darwin in those years. I don't know whether they still are, but the Estedford, the Darwin Estedford brought the community together each year where the talent of all the young people was put on display. And, and I can remember the families that we used to compete against. We used to compete against the Roslyn and Judy Brown, Brown Beresford's family, Marilyn Paspaley and her family. <laughs> you know, we, we were, we'd be on stage doing all the things that, uh, you know, dancing or elocution or verse speaking or uh, stage acts. And I can remember very strongly for about five years of my life, it actually was a very important part of my upbringing in Darwin. Those Stedfords, and that was my mother. And um, so, we had a, had, a, had a strange set of parents. They were both very passionate. How did they end up in the territory? Yeah, how did they end up in the territory? Well, they, well, I was conceived. It turned out either in Sydney or in Tasmania, because that's where they were. <laughs> and it was freezing cold. It was freezing cold, right? <laughs> and uh, they decided. My father wanted to, they, the, it was so cold, they wanted to move and get into a warmer environment. So my father applied for a transfer in the army and he did. He, he got it to Darwin. And in the months before I was born, they flew up on the milk run, on the small planes in that era, to Darwin. And um, I was born in Darwin. I could have been born in Hobart. Right. Yeah, but... Uh, yeah, that's how they ended up, and then they were at the Larrakia base. It's just the same place now where, where, where it is as it is now, but, of course, it was different, and I, I can only think back. I can't really remember it all in great detail. I remember bits of it, but I was born at Darwin, Darwin Hospital. And so you were the oldest? Yeah, I was the, I was the first born. I, I was the oldest. So I had my, my, other, my, my sister Gay, unfortunately, died about in early 70s. She... Killed, actually. She was in a parachute accident. Gay was uh, about uh, 14 months younger than me. And then Mignon, who unfortunately has recently passed away, uh, was about another 12 months behind. So the, you know, the, the kids came out in quick succession in Darwin. So we had to... Um, what was your second uh, What was your second st- uh, sister's name? Gabriel. Gay Steele. That, that, so that, Gay, and then after that? Mignon, M-I-G-N-O-N-N-E, a French name, Mignon. Yes. Yeah. And we all, you know, we were the steel kids out in Berrimar in, in those years. The reason I mention it, there might be some people who remember it, but the Qantas base had a, a big, it, it, it was the main base for all the Qantas overseas flights coming through Darwin at that time, and that's where all their staff uh, stayed and worked to service the aeroplanes. And any international travellers, they had to be put up somewhere. That's where they stayed, you know. So they had so they had accommodation services, and they had they had tennis courts, they had swimming pools, they had a football field, they had all sorts of recreational facilities. It was just right right across the road from where we lived. So as little children, we just naturally fitted in, you know, and we became part of that community. And Can I just were, yeah. I just want to I just want to ask you some some very pertinent questions about the war. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, obviously, you were born after that. Yeah, I was born did, after that. Did your parents talk about the bombing of Darwin at all? 
Uh, well, they didn't, but we all did talk about it because when I was growing up, it was obvious Darwin had been flattened because there were there were cratered buildings and bomb craters and ships sunk in the hub everywhere. And in fact, up until I was about five or six years old, or even longer than that, I think, I can remember the devastation of Darwin. It was it was still it was still uh, devastated when I was five or six years old. So that that would have been. 52, 53, 50, mm. 54. Uh, and 12 years later. Uh, it was actually longer than that because the ships were, weren't fully removed from the harbour until probably another 10 or 15 years after that. Uh, but the, the buildings, you know, the post office, the all those buildings that are now, which I've been to now since, have, you know, have been resurrected and look really great now, but they were just, they were just bombed out buildings. Mm. So, and, and where we lived... The other, the other memory of the war was where, where we actually lived in Berrimah. We were just up the road from the, the Japanese war cemetery, which was just about probably oh, 500, yard, 500 yards from where we lived. You know, they had all the, and they were all unidentified graves, but that was, that's where the Japanese who died in the attacks on Darwin, that's where, that's where they were buried. So, yeah, well, I was very conscious of the war when I was growing up. Because I could see the devastation around me. Yeah. Did you feel like? Uh, I mean, I know you were still young, but did you feel like it had affected the psyche of Darwin? Was did you feel that? Um, well, it wasn't perhaps as safe as people felt it was. Yes, I suppose it did because Cyclone Tracy underlined that, didn't it? That yes. really underlined it, uh, and that was when I was. Uh, I was, uh, you know, an adult at Adelaide University, 74, my first marriage, and I, uh, I, mum was with me that night. She was actually flew, flew down on Christmas Eve. Gosh, she missed yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She mentioned there was something, there was a Cyclone Tracy circulating out in the Arafura Sea, but, you know, we all got out. But the next morning, you know, the news on the ABC radio, Darwin's been devastated, you know. Mm. Well, <laughs> that was it for the next... Two months, Mum was with us. She wanted to get back. That's all she wanted to do. She wanted to get back home, and she did, because she was a major, uh, pivotal player in the Fong Lim family and in their businesses. And she was their accountant and all their and their business manager. So she so she got back in on those grounds. What was her name? My mother's name was Mary Steele, but her, but but her Christian name was Mary Heffernan. But she was known as Mary Steele and. All of the Fong Lim children used to call her Auntie, Auntie, Auntie Mary. Right. You know, and I'm talking about all of them. You know, she was, and, and, and they were also part of my family growing up too because I can remember them as I'd have my holidays in Darwin, you know, always going around meeting them all because they were all part of the, that wider group. Of course, Cyclone Tracy, unfortunately, blew all that away. Yes. That, that. And, and, and it blew away other things too. It blew away old Darwin. It blew away the relaxed. Uh, I know she got a fan there going in the back where you're working, but, but you know the houses on stilts and the fans. That was life in Darwin. Of course, that's you have it in elements around Darwin now too. But it's nothing like it was when I was growing up. You know, like <laughs> no wonder the place was destroyed because they, you know they weren't built for cyclones. Those houses back in that period. So that did change Darwin. No question. So I think Tracy underlined it. Mm. Uh, uh, the fragility, the war. Well, for me, I, I just I was very aware that Darwin really did 
suffer a war. Now, I didn't actually, I couldn't draw any comparisons between Darwin anywhere, anywhere else because we didn't have TV in those years or, or I hadn't really travelled anywhere else. But later in retrospect, I can, I can you know, I realised that I grew up, you know, with the remnants of the war, clearly all around me when I was a child. Mm-hmm. And we used to explore all of the craters and all of the underground bunkers and all that. That was all, you know, an exciting thing for children to do. But I, I, I think back now, well, I would never have done that if Darwin had been a normal place mm-hmm. and, you know, suffered that. So... Um, Were there any stories of unexpl- unexploded ordinances? No, we didn't. We never found that. <laughs> but, uh, but all the caves and bunkers and other things, the East Point... Uh, all of those things that we the kids explore. The Lamaru Bards were the major focal point of the town in that era, in the 50s and 60s, for all the children. It, uh, I've since been back a few times and that's all sort of vaulted up and that you can't get down to it. But they were the, that was the major swimming place. That was, that was the major place where you would swim in Darwin at Lamaru Bards. Um, and then they had the pool out at uh, Fenny, Fenny Bay and, of course, Howard Springs and Berry Springs. So they were the major places where... People would swim, and of course, in the, and in the and in the, the wet season you couldn't, but in the dry season you could. And I remember all that, and how acutely aware we were of that. So, yeah, there's uh, a lot of I have a lot of uh, fond mem- memories of growing up in Darwin. It, it was a very rich environment for a child to grow up in, you know. Yes, yeah. and and brother Roger rocked up. He was last, was he? Well, no, Roger's older than me. He's nine years older than oh, me. Oh, he's older. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's from my father's, one of my father's first marriages. So he's, oh. we're, we're, we're half brothers. But he was always my brother <laughs> because at a very early age, when all us little kids were, you know, running around as toddlers, Roger would visit regularly. And then Roger became a stockman. And of course, Roger's story is well known in the territory. You know, he had, he had a, a few problems growing up because he was, as a teenager growing up during the war, you know, there was a few run-ins with uh, the local constabulary, but he, he got through that in, in Darwin and, the, and the, they very wisely um, did things to help Roger out, you know. It was a different era where you, were, you wouldn't, you, everyone had a second, second chance and he, he became a, you know, a stockman at Humbert, Humbert River in the Victorian River Downs station. I think Graham's already gone through that story about Roger. And uh, Roger then became extremely successful in every way, you know, uh, from stockman to drover to station manager and then uh, and then uh, stock inspector and then um, selling insurance. To all us, it's great. He was great at that. That was there was no problems at, at, at that era about that. Everyone just thought it was just standard fare. But anyway, he then he then became a very successful politician, and he joined it just before Darwin got destroyed. So what an initiation! Mm-hmm. That group came in. The whole group of them came in and won those elections, and then Darwin got destroyed. So they had to, they actually had to guide and rebuild Darwin mm. as a group of neophyte politicians. Mm. That group actually rebuilt Darwin. No and question about it. Right, and so so Rogers, your, your was he your only half brother, or did oh no, there's him? another brother, Bo, which I didn't meet too many many years later, and that was because of the war, the Second World War. You know, split the families up. Um, 
Uh, and I had another older sister, which I, sorry about that, which I met, uh, which I met uh, actually about over 10 years ago now. I met her, but she's now passed on, Sandra. I think that's the only, <laughs> the only one. <laughs> My father. Uh, was I was busy. <laughs> so okay, so so um, he had a previous family. Yes, yes. He got divorced, and his uh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, because all the you know, the turbulence of the depression and the war. You know, we've got to uh, you've got to got to give a lot of slack to people. You know, people were trying to get by in a very difficult time. Yes. Difficult era, yeah. But I still, I mean, uh, you know, obviously I have this misconception about history that divorce was was a rarity in, in Australia back in those days. Well, yes and no, because there were probably a lot of de facto relationships too. We, mm. uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it, it was it was rare. It wasn't necessarily considered, you know. And I still have those values, by the way. Um, uh, you know, after two. Two marriages and two divorces, but there was never any real acrimony. Uh, I put a lot of it down to, in my own case, to the turbulent nature of my own life as a scientist mm. and uh, biting a problem that no one else wanted to deal with in, in well, science. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah, I, no, just wanna, I, just wanna, I just want to. I just want to under, underline it that I'm partly responsible for that sort of. Thing. But then again, I—that was my character. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't back away from those sorts of issues. For taking after your father is what you were. Really yeah, saying. I obviously. But and my mother, my mother, my mother had that fierce. She had that fierce Irish um, resolve. No question. Well, let me ask you a question about your mother. Yeah, you said she was Catholic. She's Catholic, right? And then, and then a lapsed Catholic, and then excommunicated Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. But, oh yes. Yeah. But uh, surely marriage, marrying a, a divorcee yes, has been that a was huge problem. But, but he was a communist to boot, so that made it even worse. Oh, okay. And he wasn't a Catholic, so that was like three strikes. No, and he, 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 he was an atheist. And in oh. some ways my father, my father, yeah, my father, atheism, in many ways my, my views on religion are very, very far more mature than that, I'd like to think anyway, because I think that... It's really arrogant to be an atheist, okay, and it's really arrogant to be a person who's against an atheist. <laughs> because the mystery of the universe is far deeper than that. Yes, it yes. is far deeper than that. You know, the origin of life in the universe and how the universe began is so mind-boggling. Yes, it suspends that sort of that sort of thinking. So I'm very much. I, I'm pragmatic with respect to the scientific consequences of what I just mentioned, yes. but I'm very, very tolerant to any position on on, on origins and what are the ultimate uh, and all the ultimate questions because no one is a no one has the answer to them all, and therefore all views, providing you don't behave like Hitler and go around slaughtering people, uh, all 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 views are legitimate to me. So that's where I differ with from my father. Yeah, Ted, do you find sometimes um, if you're having a bad day, yeah, or, or if you know you just feel like life is just terrible, mm. 
Do you find that uh, looking up at the sky at night time, uh, or even better with a telescope, um, or possibly watching a documentary on astronomy, yeah, just kind of puts everything into perspective? Certainly does, and I don't have the opportunity to do much of that, what you're talking about, but I have been in situations where I, I have seen it, you know, not around any of the cities. You have to be out in the bush to see it. But you're dead right. The enormity of the universe has to make us humble and has to temper any arrogance we have that we know what the final solutions are. And uh, certainly it, it does. In, in fact, that's always there at the back of my mind in everything I've been doing just in the last five or ten years of my research, uh, the universe and its and the enormity of that backdrop uh, has moderated and has, and has allowed me to handle scientific problems in a way I probably didn't handle when I, when I was younger. Because I, I didn't actually honestly think about it. I, I knew it was there, but I didn't think about it as much as I do now. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I remember the first time I looked in a telescope. Hmm. Um, it was in Perth. It was actually somewhere outside of Perth with uh, yeah. one of my very, very good childhood friends. Yeah. who is actually um, a professor of physics in, uh, in Adelaide University now. Um, and uh, he, he showed me Andromeda, the galaxy, yeah, which uh, you could see with your naked eye. It looked like a star. Yes. Uh, and then he pointed the telescope up at it and I had a look in there. And you saw? I saw the spiral and I saw the billions of stars in it. And it changed my life. Yes. It is the sheer enormity of it, isn't it? It's just utterly mind-blowingly incomprehensible. Yes. Uh, and I just find that sometimes when, you know, when you think that life is all too much yes. and, uh, you know, all your problems are insurmountable, you just have to reflect on something like that, and it just is yeah. so no, no, very I, calming. It is, but it's very humbling and causes your mind to think through things you just don't normally think about. And it has to take away the smug arrogance that we, that we know. And uh, it has been basically cosmic biology that's what I've been in, into for the last 15 years when I think about it, but particularly the last five years, is, is driven by that sense of wonder, really. Mm. No, no question about it. Um, well, talking about wonder, yeah. the 50s and 60s in Darwin. Yeah. Yes. What was it like? Well, of course, for me, they were the good old days because in the 50s uh, it was complete freedom for children. For me, all of us, we all felt safe and free in, in a strange environment. Um, everybody, of course, was smaller. Everyone knew each other. And, um, and there were obviously tensions going on with my mother and father and in the wider business community and all that, but we, we didn't really pick that up as children. But there was one, one tension through the Catholic Church who was absolutely uh, very angry at my mother so they did everything they could to destroy the, the family business through boycotts and... Uh, oh, dear. Yeah, yeah, yes, and it was quite nasty. But anyway, and sending up the, 
various fathers and monsignors to Darwin to check on the children with the, you know, and of course that just confirmed that it was even worse than they thought because the children, you know, were. But but but, but despite that was in the backdrop. That, uh, apart from that, I had a wonderful childhood. You know, when I, my mother and my father, it was just wonderful. And um, the 60s, I had a great experience in the schools, in Darwin High School and all the friends I made and all the things we did. Did you go fishing? Oh, go- a lot of fishing with Tommy Fong. Tommy Fong, I don't really know Tommy, but Tommy Fong is still in Darwin. Uh, he was a master fisherman and he used to... <laughs> Master fisherman, and all of the all of his friends and mates became, you know, apprentices. You know, we could, we, we if we went out with Tom, we we're certainly going to catch fish, and and almost certainly a lot of fish, and of all types, and and with different types of baits and nets that he had. So it was just wonderful, you know. And I, I do have the wonderful memories of Tommy and his brother Pussy Fong, the whole family there. Um, and what about uh, what about crabbing? Did you do crabbing? No, I didn't do any crabbing. They used to talk about it. I never, I never actually got involved in any. any uh, were crabbing. crocodiles an issue back then? Uh, only, only a small issue for me when I was at Humbert River. When I was with my brother, took me down there for a holiday, uh, and I remember swimming in the, the rivers and creeks down Humbert River, and they were loaded with crocs. But they said, "Don't worry, that you know they won't eat you. They're small, but you can see them. <laughs> you can see the crocs." Oh my lord! Really? Yeah. So, yeah but uh, yeah, but but. In, at that time, there was still, uh, you know, the crocodile population was wasn't really as big as it is now. I don't, I'm not sure. I think it's because they had in that area they had a lot of croc shooters out there who were shooting crocs, you know, for skin. Right. So that so that kept the kept the numbers down. But of course, that was in the 50s and early 60s. It's all changed now. They've have. You know, you have Dr. Graham Webb with his crocodile farms, and you have all sorts of other ways now of looking after crocodiles. So, so, but no, no, but I didn't necessarily feel frightened of them, of the crocs. I suppose I should have in, 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 in retrospect, because they could have easily been there on the beaches or in the mangrove swamps where, where we used to go and sort of fish. So, yeah, but it wasn't an issue, no. And you, you mentioned Tommy Fong and Pussy Fong. Yeah. Um, the, the Darwin population was sophisticated enough to uh, be able to distinguish the local Chinese from the, uh, the feared and, I guess, um, despised Japanese that, uh, you know, created so much havoc. Yes, yes, they did. But also, too, in that era, um, Darwin was a multiracial society when I was growing up mm. in the 50s and the 60s. So I, I actually grew up in a multiracial society in Darwin, well before it became the thing in the southern cities. Mm. So I, do, I, never, I never had any fears about people from other races when I was growing up. Uh, and when did, the, uh, when did the Greek population sort of arrive? Well, that's Darwin? right. They were there with me. They grew up with me. And the Italian population, <laughs> the German. The Chinese have been there for many, many years. Yeah, yes. that's the point. They all grew up with me. So I'd never had any... Uh, all I can remember is that, particularly with the uh, with the Greek family, Peter Sarimi, uh, his family, or the wider family is probably still there, but I remember they, they bought 10 acres of us. When we had 15 acres at Miramar, off, you know, opposite the water space, we sold 
the back 10 acres to Peter Serimi, who set up a really viable <laughs> market garbage <laughs> market farmers. We, 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 we were trying to market garbage, but he was far more successful, you know. And then he became a competitor <laughs> with us. Right. So, but there were... There were and there were other there were other other Greek families the forty eighties and Kerry Amanus uh, Kerry you know we went to school together and I've recently been in touch with Kerry actually about a year ago uh, uh, we were in we were at Darwin Primary School in the same class together we had s- several years and that was a totally different era that primary school by primary school experiences with all the friends I made there was very, very different to when I went to high school. And I've since discovered why. A lot of those Greek and Italian boys that I went to school with, their parents whipped them off to boarding school, <laughs> you know, as when high school was coming. So that's why I lost touch with them in, in a way, whereas the, the rest of us, uh, you know, we went to Darwin High School. And you were quite happy there. You flourished oh, yes. there. Yeah, no problems. It was still it was still a multiracial school. It's just that I do remember, you know, it's only recently I've realised why I lost track with certain Greek and Italian boys, and that's because they went down to boarding school in the southern cities. Uh, yes, but you arrived, you arrived a little later after finishing your year 12 and then deciding to go to university. Yeah. That's right. Um, although I had, as, as Peter Whelan, he's another great friend of mine, Peter, Peter, Peter Whelan reminded me, I, I, I thought, well, I did. I actually matriculated twice. I think it was 66 and 65 and 66. So I, I did leaving and then leaving honours. I don't know why I did it. I think it was my mother. <laughs> my mother, she wanted, me to, she wanted me to learn Latin, you see. She was convinced I had to understand Latin. <laughs> so, I kept going off. I don't know how I got through. I think I struggled through with a bare pass in Latin. And uh, then I went down to Adelaide University, having matriculated twice. Uh, yeah, Peter reminded me that he was already down there. Uh, or, well, I can't remember now the exact uh, time frame, but... Um, Another great friend was Bob Richards, uh, who, you know, he went on to do the incredible things that he's done at Humpty Doo Barramundi. It's just extraordinary. He took me out there a couple of years ago and showed me what he was doing. And, and all of Bob's skills that I saw in him as a child and watched him at university, and watched him, he brought them all together and built this incredible Barramundi farm. No, it's quite an achievement. It is. It is. It is. It's a really, a real achievement, yeah. So anyway, um, of course, Bob was part of the wider group of us all at, at university and, uh, and the fishing groups. We used to have incredible fishing holidays and funny, all funny, but they were all a bit funny back then, you know, teenagers. So, yeah. Was, uh, was moving to Adelaide a big deal for you? Uh, for me it was because I got incredibly homesick. Uh, I remember Don Fuller and a few of the others saying how Ted really got homesick, and I was. I got really homesick. Uh, for some reason, it was my first time away, and uh, and it was a very tough year for me at university. In uh, I did well actually. I, I, in retrospect, I did really got got really quite good marks. I never got the, as good of marks again in my remaining <laughs> four or five years. But the first year, I did, and uh, and I found it extremely. I got extremely homesick, and I, and they all comment. They used to comment on that because we all. All of the all of my friends that were at Adelaide all went back to Darwin for the for the Christmas holidays and and it was enormous relief you know release for me to go back. I think it was the end of sixty seven. Uh, 
I went back for that Christmas and and so for me it was a rite of passage to having getting so homesick. I, I do remember the homesickness more than anything else actually in that in in that particular year because I suppose I, I suppose you know I was a Darwin boy, whereas many others had already travelled and you know, had been back and forth. I'd never done any any of that sort of stuff. And for me, it was a complete shock, a complete shock, you know, culture shock. Where did from, you live? Did you live on campus or? In... No, we lived in uh, with the dear old ladies that let, you know, would let the rooms out. Yeah, and I did that for a number of years. <laughs> and uh, then in my third and fourth years, we, we, a lot of us would live in the same big boarding house. So that was terrible because we were all, you know, that just mm-hmm. meant that we were, it was a license to get up in trouble. But, um, yeah, so... And you did a science degree? Yeah, I did a science degree and a teacher's college certificate, but never completed the teacher's college certificate, even though I, I benefited enormously from it because they took, you know, they put us out into the schools and we had to teach little, little children. And I, I remember all of that as a being an extraordinary, um, extraordinary um, um, skill that they instilled in us, yeah. And so after finishing yeah, teacher's... What's that? Uh, so, so, so you did a science degree majoring what? Uh, in uh, my, in microbiology, biochemistry, okay. uh, molecular biology. Yeah. Mm. And, and did you choose that because that's what you wanted to do, or because yeah, you just I fell suppose, into it? I suppose I chose it because I was good at it and I loved it. You know, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I suppose that's what you would advise any person going through. You just you just keep following what you think you're really good at. Yeah. And, so and, 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 and then what's, what, uh, what capped it off was the, the professor of the Department of Microbiology saw me coming through the ranks and picked me out as a person he wanted to, you know, wanted to go through honours and do a PhD. So I was picked, if you like, from the ruck right. by, by Professor Rowley who saw things and he could see that I was going to probably that would be my life and he was right, actually. He did right on that. <laughs> and... Um, and um, so he was my first mentor at the university. But I should point out, I had another mentor at high school, and it's very, he very important. He had a big influence on me uh, in the fourth, fifth, well, the third, fourth, and fifth years at Darwin High School. His name was Hector Clayson. Hector was a, a Sri Lankan English teacher with a young family who had was worldly. He'd obviously spent time in England. He'd obviously been to universities in England. And here he was teaching English at Darwin High School. And for some reason, he befriended me. And I warmed to that. And he was my mentor. He was an English teacher, effectively my mentor. And we were in a lot of communication through the years. And when I'd come back to Darwin on my holidays and work, and, I, and but during while, while, while at school, he was also an advisor to me. Uh, so that was my first uh, taste of a mentor who took an interest in me. Mm. Uh, and then another one, then later at Adelaide University, Derek Rowley did the same thing. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And so you finished your, your PhD uh, straight after your honours and then you went straight into Yeah, I did, went through yeah, regimental, you know, from go to work was nine years from when and I first did university to when I finished my PhD <laughs> with nine years. Yeah. And, and what was your PhD in? It was in uh, it was in Vibrio cholera research. It was uh, in research on incestinal immunity to cholera, 
very relevant to right now, actually, because all of the principles that we discovered in the protection, the mechanisms that protect against an infection that comes in through the mouth and into the gut, all of those things are very relevant now with COVID because I'm just going to jump to something that's so ripe in my mind. I must mention it here. Um, flu or common cold, the only vaccines that are going to work against those sorts of infections are the vaccines that stimulate that immunity in the nose, the mouth, the respiratory tract, and the gastrointestinal tract. And that's called mucosal immunity, secretory IgA. So he gave me a project to purify secretory IgA to homogeneity. By that I mean to really purify it so it was free of all contaminants to work out what its functional properties were so it wasn't confounded by any contaminant. So it was a big challenge for me and I just grasped that project and, and did that for five years. Hmm. So um, I was on the ground floor in establishing the concepts of mucosal immunity, which I'm now realising with great dawning and kicking myself, I didn't think about it earlier, that that's part of the reason why maybe the vaccines aren't working the way they, they should be. You've got to have that sort of stimulation of the local mucosal tract, preferably with a, with a live, in, live non-lethal infection to stimulate that sort of immunity against those sort of diseases. So um, it's these, all these coming back to me now. You know, it's, all, it's all come full circle. My, my PhD, <laughs> 45 years later, come full circle. Yes. <laughs> so, so you're saying the current vaccines don't actually do that? Sadly. None of the current vaccines, the jab in the arm, this enormous propaganda campaign to give us that, none of them are going to protect us against COVID or influenza. So Literally. what about all the research? And, uh, and I, say that, I, I say that with conviction because I know what I'm saying is true and no one wants to hear it because the rollout is billions and billions and billions of dollars in money and huge political investment of all the political careers in Australia by all those advocating it. Oh dear! No Lord. one wants to hear from a, someone who, who, who's a blunt scientist who actually knows what's going on, that they're not going to work. Full stop. What do we do? I don't know, but I tell you what: what you're doing now is not going to work. So, what does it actually do? The, what, the jab in the arm. What the yeah. what what the jab in the arm will do will stimulate systemic antibodies or parenteral immunisation. It will certainly stimulate antibodies to COVID or flu in the blood, but the critical antibodies have to be those that ooze out and get secreted by the mucosal cells in the mouth, the nose, and the intestinal tract and the respiratory cells. They're the antibodies that form the antiseptic paint, the secretory IgA, that prevents the virus or the bacterium or the pathogen first making contact with the epithelial cell and trying to penetrate it. You see? So, and it's those antibodies that stop that. The antibodies in the blood don't do that. That's why, they're not, that's why they're not going to work. And listen, it's not just me that's saying this. If you read the Centers for Disease, Disease Control on the efficacy of all the current jab in your arm vaccines, they're saying it too. They're in a roundabout long sort of way. They say it won't stop you getting the disease, but it might moderate the severity. What they mean by that is that in the case of COVID, the COVID that might escape you know, the, the, the lungs and the, and the respiratory tract and has secondary effects in the body, those antibodies will neutralise the virus there, but not where it's necessary to be neutralised. That's in the epithelial lining. So even the right at the, 
The Centers for Disease Control recognises it. If you read that report, that's basically in a long-winded way, says what I've just said in blunt terms, that it won't protect. Anyway, look, uh, look I, I don't want to alarm people, but look, the trouble, <laughs> is, the trouble is I can't help telling these blunt conclusions. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting into, I can sense I'm getting into trouble because I'm, I'm being quite blunt about it. No one wants to hear this. So is it possible to develop a vaccine to to do what yes. you say it should do? Yes, it is. And the principles there are having a, an attenuated form of COVID, let's say COVID or flu. Attenuated means a non-lethal or harmless form. Yes. Which is still replicating. Yes. Right? Which can be sp- through a spray, a nasal spray or a tablet given orally or nasally, and that will stimulate that that immune system, which is the mucosal immune system. Yes. In other words, it mimics the natural infection. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yes. Because natural yes. infections, natural infections with flu and COVID are very, very good at protection. Yes. Anyone that's had a natural infection is 80 to 90% certain of being protected next time around. Yes. They really do work. That really does work. But, of course, people say, shock, horror. I have to get infected before I become protected? And I said, yes, unfortunately. And, uh, and, and then, but what about all the old people? You see, we're now getting into the areas that I'm really, I do know something about. Uh, the, problem, the problem with COVID is the hysterical overreaction because it's a very small portion of the population that are really vulnerable to COVID. The 1%. Less than that. 0.1%. But I thought 1% of the people that get COVID die. It's less than that. 1%, I, thought, I thought 5% get hospitalised and 1% die. Oh, no, it's, it's, no, it's actually less than that because the numbers are, are very rubbery. The point is the group, the vulnerable group that potentially can die, first of all, are defined by their age, 80 to 90, particularly. In, in, Victoria, in Victoria, that was what it was clearly. But more importantly, it's whether they have what's called um, an innate immune response. And by innate immune response, I mean um, the ability of the cells of the lining of the nose and the mouth and the respiratory tract to stop the virus in the first 24 to 48 hours by a whole repertoire of of antiviral innate immune tricks that all cells have. Most you know, healthy cells have all those tricks to stop viruses doing that or growing. But the vulnerable, the frail, the elderly comorbid group, that very small fraction, have lost that capacity. Mm. And finding out that in advance is, is the difficulty because we're not sure who's got it and who hasn't got it in that age group. Mm. But what's, what's pretty clear is when you look at the longitudinal studies with COVID, those that have lost that capacity they're in severe trouble. They could die. Those that have it are fine. They, they get the, the infection, they suffer a bit, but then they get over it. So it really is a, it's that critical age group and that critical um, immunologically deficit group that have got to be looked after. So you're saying the, um, I mean, I saw some figures yesterday uh, out of the US yeah. that COVID was the biggest killer um, uh, of of people 
after I think it was heart disease and cancer last uh, year. I'm not so sure about a lot of those figures. Look, I'm sorry, uh, a lot of those, a lot of those figures to me are hysterical. Furthermore, the COVID virus is saturating the environment in America. I'm following that every every day. It's saturating mm. the environment, mm. and in Europe, the northern the northern forty degree latitude band from about uh, thirty five uh, north to fifty north. Mm. That band is literally being saturated with COVID. There are COVID genomes and COVID proteins and antigens in the environment everywhere, and that that creates a problem for tests for people that might be, you know, suffering from any type of disease because a lot of people will score positive for COVID even if, even if they don't have the, the disease. That's the problem. Now, Why is that? Because of the, the nature of the test. The PCR test picks up, is very sensitive to picking up the viral genome and it may very well be that people are, are dealing with the virus, right, and have it at a low level but they'll still start a score, you know, a positive. Look, I have I have turned off a lot of those numbers in the United States. They they're simply to me a lot of them are completely meaningless numbers to me, and they're so saturated with political hyperbole. I simply I just can't believe them anymore. I know it's sad to say, but that's the way it is. You know, for me in analysing uh, the numbers, my my estimates are that it's about 0.1 percent of all those exposed to COVID that are likely to die from COVID. And so you think this whole shutdown that we've been through for the last 12 months is... No, no, all, that, all those lockdowns shutdowns are totally destructive, yes. Totally unnecessary. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I lived through one here in Victoria. The destruction, economic destruction in Victoria is just unbelievable. And we haven't even, haven't even paid, paid the piper on that yet, just coming out of it. And uh, now the next question is, what if, we, what if it strikes again? Now, I don't want to go there on this program, but I am following that. I'm following the way it's moving around the world. If it, uh, if it strikes Victoria again, God help us. So I say, watching the way the politicians behaved here and the senior medical establishment behaved, anything could happen. All, all bets are off. Um, whether the population will agree to another lockdown, I think is problematical now because I think it's over. What if it comes back? And you know, do you realise in the trams down here, they have a, a loudspeaker system, much like, unbelievable, I heard it today because I had to go in for my attention at one of the hospitals, where the chief medical officer is booming out, thanking everyone for wearing masks, keeping the place safe. <laughs> Just what you expect in a communist society. No different. Your dad would have been happy. Yes. It was appalling. Couldn't believe it. But I don't travel on the train very much. But I would imagine on the tram very much. But I imagine that's going on all the time. People are on daily on the train. I'm listening to this this propaganda coming out of the loudspeakers in the train. But everyone has to wear a mask. And how do you think the COVID uh, uh, virus originated? Well, now that's another story. And uh, I, would your listening population be ready for this one? Well, um, my listening population uh, is our listening population. So. I know. Well, well, I've been following COVID. Let me let me say this. I'm I'm, I'm a molecular cellular immunologist. I work on mechanisms of evolution. I work on mechanisms of disease and protection against disease. And as you've just heard, I also worked at started my career on 
uh, in, you know, local immunity, immunisation and cholera. So I, I've had a wide experience in immunology and infectious diseases and mechanisms of, but for the last um, 10 years, in particular the last five years, I've become very interested in origins of life in the universe and all the, all the evidence suggesting there is a wider cosmic biosphere beyond the Earth, and there's a lot of evidence for it. Um, probably the most striking, uh, uh, you know, because we, we don't have a lot of time to go through all the evidence, but some of the most striking ones are the obvious ones that you, people can think around and just think about it for a minute. Carbonaceous meteorites come in from cometary fragments, okay? And they're hitting the earth all the time, but there's four or five of them that are well known. There's the Murchison one in Victoria, and there's the Orgeal and the Ariel and a few others in Europe over the last hundred hundred years, which have been which have been curated, you know, cared for. And with the modern technologies of uh, scanning electron microscopes, where people can make fractures and open them up, you know, aseptically without any contamination, and look to see what structures are actually within these meteorites. There's, there's a lot of microfossils of bacteria and higher cells that are found in these meteorites. And the evidence has been accumulated by, on that set of meteorites, by independent observers independently coming in and checking the data of other scientists, okay? So it's pretty rock solid. For me as a scientist, that, that's what's required in any establishment of, of a scientific fact. You've got to have independent checking of that fact. Okay. So if you have cells, are you saying that we that is alien life? Uh, or yeah, let me just I'll just go to the next step. Yeah, before I fully underline that, let me give you the next step. These carbonaceous meteorites are dated to greater than four point five billion years old. That is older than the age of the Earth and the solar system. So that meant that fossilized forms of life that we can recognise as living fossils, you know, so, so, sorry, which we can recognise as fossils of living systems are older than the solar system. So that means life has been in the extra solar system space before, before the solar system formed. So, yes, I am saying that. There, but there's, there's other evidence. There's spectral evidence from interstellar dust. There's, um, there's all sorts of other evidence that suggests that we're getting visited all the time and uh, by particularly viruses and bacteria that are attacking the earth. And my collaborator, Professor Wick Ramasanghi, uh, in Cardiff in the UK, uh, worked with Professor Fred Hoyle uh, <clears throat> on, on all this data. And, of course, they wrote a famous book published in 1979 while I was, while I was making my way in science, uh, but I wasn't fully aware of what they were doing at that time. But it's it's a very famous book called Diseases from Space, and they document all of all of the all the pandemics in history which have features that can only be explained by extracellular source of the pathogen, you know, pathogenic attack. Influenza is a particular one, of course, because there have been quite a few remarkable ones like the Spanish flu. But there have been many other pandemics in history which have really striking features that are very difficult to explain by slow fuse burn of slow mutation or person-to-person -person spread because each one of them, each one of the pandemics in history that have had any impact on the human population has been sudden and explosive. Plague of Athens is a classic one, but, you know, 
400 BC, people were dying in the streets. The chroniclers of the time describing the events as being astonishing. Now, it could have been flu, but the descriptions of the afflictions on the people meant that it could have been a, it could have easily been something else. But there have been many other pandemics. The Spanish flu in 1819 was the first really well-documented modern pandemic where you could actually get granular detail and features about it. And Hoyle and Wickram are saying, document all that evidence for the Spanish flu, and it's clear that didn't start on Earth. That, that came from an extraterrestrial source. Well, COVID's the same. Now, I've been working on COVID now since the middle of January last year. Now, prior to that, I'd published a number of papers with Professor Wick Ramasenghi on cosmic biology and all the evidence for it. You know, some of the stuff I've just des described with you. And uh, we, were, we were contemplating what was going on in China. If you remember back to the middle of January last year, there was an outbreak of a disease in China. You know, the respiratory disease. And it was causing, hasn't really, wasn't really dramatic in the middle of January. But towards the end of January, it was striking. That was Wuhan and all those events we saw on TV, of you know, all the pandemonium that was causing. Now, while that was unfolding, Chandra and I were trying to figure out this looks like, you know, pathogenic. This is a, a clear case of a, a disease from space, but we had to link it up with a delivery system. And... Um, and then obvious, uh, it had to be a meteorite strike somewhere in China that led up to, you know, the big outbreak in, in uh, starting in December, then particularly in, in January. And it had to be of a type that would cause simultaneous infections in a large part of central China, because that's what happened in China, mm. by the way. It happened in a large part of central China. Well, there was a meteorite strike, a significant strike in China, uh, on October the 11th of 2019 at Jilin, which is a little bit northeast of Wuhan. But nevertheless, it was significant. It was well documented. It's on space.com. You know, it's all the features of that strike are documented. The actual stones themselves dropped in northeast China. But it looks like to us it was a carbonaceous meteorite. Now, why is that important? Carb carbonaceous meteorites are these life life-carrying meteorites, the ones that with the fossils. So they have a lot of carbon in them and they are, they're loosely held. They're not, they're not solid iron stones. They're, they're, they're living material, so it's looser. So these sort of meteorites would fragment as they're entering the stratosphere well before you see the fireball. So our surmise was that it... So that was the initiating event and then the, the dust... Some of it came down, the viral Latin dust came down in over Wuhan, brought down by the rain. But the rest of it, this is important because there's a lot of features about this, this pandemic which people just aren't even aware of. A lot of it stayed up there in that stratospheric jet stream and it was going east to west, that it was going from China through the Middle East, through Europe to America. And if one looks at the major explosive events from Wuhan, through February, March, it was Tehran. Remember that? Remember Tehran? How Tehran? Then we had Lombardy in Italy. Remember that? How we had, and then Spain. And there was a temporal relationship. They look as if, if you have to plot the curves on a 
occur. They look like they're all superimposed, but there is actually a time difference between each of them. No, one, one occurred before the other, before the other. And then we have New York. Now, when this was unfolding in Tehran and uh, Italy, we predicted and we published a paper that the next point of call had to be New York City because that was on the same you know, latitude line. So it looked like it was being taken by these jet stream winds. And uh, sure enough, New York got struck. And then the, then the west coast of the United States got struck. Um, but that sort of evidence is, is part of it. The other, the other features about this pandemic, which no one wants to address, are all the ships at sea that get struck. Uh, and where you, can, where you can clearly isolate out the fact that it couldn't have been contaminated cargo coming in at the time the supplies have been put on the ship, but, you know, when all that can be ruled out, there are clear cases of ships at sea coming down suddenly with COVID, simultaneously, all crew members going, coming, coming down. And then there's the then there's other cases where remote locations in strange parts of the world suddenly come down with COVID. And the most recent case is a Chilean army base in Antarctica. Remember that? Late December? Yeah. The whole base came down, including the supply ship in the bay. They all came down with COVID at the same time. How did that happen? And then there are other examples where islands have that when, when the rest of the world was being engaged with COVID, islands such as Sri Lanka had flatlined the entire year. And then between October 4th to October 6th last year, Sri Lanka went from hardly any cases of COVID to a thousand within 24 to 48 hours. Now, how did that happen? That's too fast for person-to-person -person spread. Now, you see, I'm only giving you some of the evidence. There's all the genetic evidence that we've got with the virus as well, which suggests that it's totally compatible with that sort of movement that I've just given you. So COVID, we think, is a, another pathogenic pandemic from space, engulfed the world, striking at different times, the capricious nature of it through the, you know, the wind systems and the weather, uh, different doses, different population in, intensities, uh, and uh, the, that's not being factored in in any of the programs to combat COVID, is it? You think about it. No one's no one's thinking this way to to use that as you know the way of thinking about it because it's not being it's not those explosive epidemics we're seeing are not being caused by person to person spread. They're coming in by simultaneous infection from the sky of lots of people at once. So, you know, we have to rethink what's going on with COVID, that's all. So are you saying that it can't be spread from person to person? Oh, no, it, it does get spread from person to person. Of course it does. But so you're saying... Yeah, but the initiating events happen by the infall event. And are you and saying... Then, and, then it, and then it can be spread person to person from there, yeah. And so you're saying the the the, the bat... Theory or oh that no, that's totally impossible. Not from bats. Not and well, from, bats, uh, well, look, we we've 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 looked at all of the sequences related to COVID that have been discovered in all of the animals, okay, and then compare and ask what you know what is their similarity to the current COVID. The closest similarity is ninety six percent similar. Similar. Now, the, the genome of COVID is 30,000 
bases, that is nucleotides, that is letters, if, if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, the closest relatives that are known are 96% similar. So that's so that means that you have to have a, 1,100 changes at the right spots to get COVID, to give you the, you know, the COVID. Now, the probability of getting that from all the current sequences that are available is something like 10 to the 684. You know, it's an impossible number. It's a, a cosmic number. It's so large that it's larger than all the molecules in the known universe and atoms. Um, so the animal jump models are improbable. What I'm saying is that, you know, people might think that they're reasonable, but they're improbable on the basis of all the evidence. And the, other, and the only other theory, of course, is it's a bioweapon escape theory. And that's, uh, and that's an absurd theory because it's a conspiracy theory and you can't explain the temporal relationship, the jet stream movement, the, the way it strikes, the genetics, uh, the fact that it came in as a, a blank check virus over Wuhan. By that I mean is it has a strategy for adapting. It's called a haplotype switching strategy, and we're the ones that discovered that. And the the uh, all of, all of that is not part of the narrative when it comes to the bioweapon leak theory. You see, you have to you have to then say how did the whole of central China get simultaneously infected at once by a simple escape from a lab? Doesn't make sense. You'd have to have infected animals or bats if that's what they're saying was the vector, going out on scale in the space of a week to ignite the, the, the entire central region of China. There's just so many things about it that require additional, what are called in science, ad hoc assumptions that you can't take it seriously. So, so it, it, why, aren't, why isn't China jumping on this explanation? Well, exactly. Why aren't they? That's been a real puzzle because it gets them off the hook. And, look, I should say this too. Those meteorite streams that I talked about, that's just not a once-off. You notice how many of these pandemics seem to originate in, in China? <laughs> and that's just been a well-known fact. Many seem to. It turns out that October, November each year, that meteorite stream that we think brought COVID in, that, the Earth crosses that meteorite stream each year at, at that time. And the angle of passage and encounter sets China up in Siberia for first encounter in most cases. So particularly China with its large human population and large animal population, there's going to be something there coming in. If, if, if there's a pathogen that, that thinks it can grow in any one of the human or animal populations, then it's likely to happen in China first before any, anywhere else just because of the sheer proximity of the meteorite stream and, and the large target population that could allow it to happen. But it's not always China. You know, at the time it happened, I must tell you, back in January, when we were watching Wuhan go up the way it did, it occurred to me and Chandra, what happens if this strike was over North America, northeast coast of the United States? Well, within a month, of course, we did get a strike. It, it came down in, in New York and all hell broke loose, as mm. you know. As, because at the time, prior to that happening, they thought it was a peculiar problem for China. But in actual fact... It wasn't. It was a problem for the world because it was in the jet streams. It was actually getting moved around the world in these tropospheric, you know, jet streams. Now, so, I would say we've, we've actually published all this. All of this evidence we've laid out in a whole series of publications, hmm. probably 15 publications over the past 12 months. So it's there for other people to evaluate. Uh, but 
I generally find that if you're wedded to a bat, a bat theory or a bioweapon theory and you're wedded to life originating on Earth and nowhere else, um, then you, te- you tend to turn off. So we're up against a, a scientific paradigm problem and a religious problem in trying to get this message out of You see, because uh, many, many Christian religions depend on life beginning on Earth, not, not from space. Many Asian religions, however, are quite comfortable with, you know, the universe being an extended biosphere of life outside our solar system. But, so are you uh, saying that uh, SARS and swine flu are all yeah, they, yeah, they all came in the same way, yeah. 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 But they, were smaller, they were smaller scale and they, they ended, they came and went. By the way, you've touched on something very important. All of the pandemics in history, they have several features. They come suddenly. They wreak their havoc, herd immunity sets in, then they peter out and go and never come back. Do you realise that SARS and MERS, SARS-1 and MERS never came back? Yet they're the, they're the prototypes that they're hoping cause COVID, but they never actually came back. They never actually came back. They died out. Now, I expect, I expect COVID to go the same way. It's just going to take longer. So by then it's all over and the vaccines are going to be, well, the vaccines don't work anyway, but the vaccines will, will, be, will be quite pointless at that time. Just as, just as the vaccines against SARS-1 and MERS-1 became redundant and pointless because it never came back, so there was nothing to use the vaccine on. Mm. I mean, you, Bill, Ga- uh, Bill Gates, is that, is that right? Uh, the yeah, Bill Gates. I mean, he, he would be uh, ordinarily regarded as... Uh, no, I'm going to be going to be blunt now. He's a fool when it comes to scientific work. Total fool. Sorry, I can't take him seriously. Anything he says, honestly, I can't. I can't. He's not a scientist. He's a philanthropist supporting mm-hmm. vaccine production, but he's not a scientist. He's got no idea what he's dealing with. I'm sorry to be so emphatic about it. I find it an affront that people are taking his ideas seriously. There's quite stupid ideas, actually, honestly. But he was the one that, uh, you know, basically said uh, a number of years ago that oh, yeah. pandemic he, he, was Yeah, he's limits. aware of the history of pandemics, yeah, and we got in touch with him a couple of years ago with our big papers, uh, and then he went quiet for a while, and he's sort of coming out again, but he's not really, you know, he's, uh, look, Bill is a philanthropist, he's not a scientist, and when it comes to science, he's a carpetbagger. Sorry, there's no other way to describe him. Are there any other scientists in Australia that uh, share your views on yeah, this too? Yeah, a number of them who are co-authors on the, on the paper in Perth. Um, but my collection of co-authors are uh, Australia, Canada, United Kingdom, US. Yes, there are, there are a range of scientists. If you look at our range of range of papers. Mm-hmm. But look, that's not the key thing. I, I urge people to confront the evidence we've assembled and fit it in with your own feelings about it. You know, um, the evidence is there. It's not going to go away. I, I've, honestly, I have never heard of uh, of a virus coming from space. This is the first time I've ever well, actually yeah, heard well, about then, uh, it. There's a long, there's a long history there's an ac- academic tradition of panspermia and 
extraterrestrial life, an original life. Oh yes, if if you've been exposed to it, it's not it's not surprising, you know, uh, because there there are you know just that evidence of the meteorites that I just talked about, mm. and it's independent uh, assessment of independently curated meteorites by independent observers. That's the key the key thing in science: objective establishment of facts. Now. That sort of scientific outlook, of course, upsets a lot of people. I can just sense this may even be ups upsetting you because it can be quite uncompromising. And, it, oh, and when it gets down to the, and when it gets down to where the rubber hits the road, it can be quite blunt. You know, it's it, it's either true or it's not true. Well, it's it's worrying because I mean, you're a scientist. You're you're you know you're a PhD. You've You've dedicated your whole life to science. Yes, exactly. Uh, and you're basically coming out and saying that what I mean, it's almost like being a climate change denier in a way. Yeah, well, that's well, that's, that's 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 the other problem. You know, that sort of language is just absurd. I find. Quite absurd. Well, what I'm trying to say is that you know, it, well, I'm, I'm drawing an analogy here, Ted. Oh yes, yes, uh, I, I, I can certainly, I can certainly see that. But uh, but uh, if you can. All I, all, I, all I urge is other scientists to confront the evidence, actually confront it. Look at the evidence, break it down, try and explain it by alternative ex ex explanations. You know, the ships at sea, just, just the ships at sea data. How did that happen? Where did, where did, the, where did the virus, how could that, that, that sheep ship, you know, that went to Kuwait and came back, Took a, a load of shit. The, 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 it's, it's, it's had several trips. This, this was in May last year. It was, it was called the L L Q eighty. It loaded off its sheep in uh, Bahrain. Then it came back. It bought bought supplies on, and it was free. There was no problem with COVID for about two months. So. And then about two about two weeks out from Fremantle. The captain asked the vet on board the ship, "Could you mind just checking on some of the crew?" They're, they're not, you know, they're, they're all the same. Well, uh, his, well, I know him. He's, he's Dr. Reb, uh, Herb Reb, uh, Rebham checked out the crew. Yeah, probably a little sniffle here. Some were complaining of a slight flu, and he thought, and he said, "Okay." He did have some medical knowledge, but he was the only one with any medical knowledge on the ship. So he 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 prescribed antibacterials. And they got over it. So he, he thought nothing of it, probably just a mild infection. And, and those he didn't prescribe the antibiotic to, they got over it just themselves. They just shrugged it off within 24 hours. But what he did notice, they all got it at the same time. Because when I asked him to write a log of what actually happened, he, re he remembered the key events. All the 23 deckhands got it at the same time. But the guys who were in the cabin at the top, you know, in the in the captains, they they were totally free of the virus. Anyone on the deck got it. Gosh. Now come on, think about that. Now there are a couple of other exactly like that. I could give you a couple of more examples, just exactly like that. Now they didn't know they had COVID. They got off the ship, and then immediately impounded because the first test came back. They were all got COVID, so the whole thing was put under quarantine. And this fellow, Herb Reverend, he's a, he's, a, he's a vet, but he's also a scientist, you know, very blunt about facts. And he was ranting and raving in the media about how, how totalitarian the police were and the, and, and the, and the West Australian government. Yeah, he didn't hold, hold, hold back. He couldn't believe it. 
He says, when they told us it was COVID, we couldn't believe it. <laughs> no one died. All mild. But it all happened suddenly. Mm. Now, I can give you, I've, look, we've published all of these instances at sea. Then there's that remote, that remote Chilean base, suddenly, all of them engaged. No one died. They just got all got it. All got you know, the mild common cold. It's basically a common cold. It's not, to 99.9% .9 of people, it's not lethal. It's a common cold. And most healthy people shrug it off. Honestly, I'm, I'm not joking about that. They get rid of it. It's pointless to vaccinate all the population. And even the old people, it's pointless to vaccinate them because they're, they've got problems with their immune system anyways. You don't want to be making it even worse for them by trying to engage with a strange vaccine. That's not going to work. I'm sorry, I have pretty strong views on this, but all based on fact. And, you know, when, when I get challenged, I, I just have to back it up that everything I say is based on fact. I'm not just making this up. This is not just a story I'm making up. And then there's well, all the islands. You know, then it's all the islands, like Sri Lanka suddenly going from nothing to 1,000 in 24 hours. That couldn't have happened by person-to-person -person spread. The island of Aruba in the Caribbean, the same. Now, how do I know all this? Well, I, I monitor all these places every night around the world and the incidents. The island of Aruba, flatlined for the entire year, and it suddenly boom, it went straight up. As if it they, struck is it possible because they weren't testing before? <laughs> yes, it's possible. <laughs> all these things are possible. All these things are possible. Mm. Of course they are. But the trouble is, these, I'm just reporting, you know, yes. what's going on. Now, now, what's going on right now with COVID weather? I can tell you what's going on. There's a rapid increase in Michigan State, in Ontario and Quebec going straight up. Uruguay, Paraguay going straight up. Argentina going straight up. Chile. What about other places? Mild in New York. Yes, Maryland. Hardly anywhere else in the United States. Don't you find that unusual? Why should it be just there and nowhere else? That's the patchy nature of this infall phenomenon we're talking about. What else is going up? On the same latitude line, Japan is going up, and so is Mongolia, of all places. It's on the same latitude line. And, and, South, and South Korea. And then when you get to Europe, the same countries on that line. Uh, Ukraine, Greece, Germany, France. A blip, uh, sorry, Netherlands, a blip in the UK. They obviously got a bit of it, but not much. But nothing in Spain and nothing in Portugal. Now, you see, it's, it's also these null zones you have to factor in. Why should suddenly a group of countries all suddenly get it and then a whole bunch of other countries not get it? You see, it doesn't make sense by simple person-to-person -person spreading, particularly with most countries now shut their borders down to travel. And I'm talking about events that have occurring in the past three or four weeks. Not uh, not something that was last year. This is recent. So all of that stuff only makes sense by the model I've just advanced to you. Honestly, does. The question is how big the dose was when it first came in with the meteorite. Well, we think it was big. It was of the same order as the Spanish flu in terms of, you know, sheer amount of virions, you know, virus. Mm. And that took two years to peter out. I think it's probably going to be the same here. Uh, I hope it is, because I certainly don't want to go through another lockdown. But look, everything says to me, watching the movement from the southern, uh, from the northern to southern hemisphere, particularly South Africa and Chile, the forty-degree line south, which is the Roaring Forties line, with South Africa, Victoria, New Zealand, Chile. Well, South Africa's got it. Chile got it. 
Australia got, we got a slight dusting in New South Wales, Avalon Beach and uh, the uh, Port Phillip Bay area in January. It all happened about the same time in all those places, but we got a, we got, we got a slight dusting. I remember I was being interviewed at the time. I said, well, that's very slight, so we're probably okay. But, you know, that doesn't mean to say we're going to, we're going to miss out when it really is, when it really does matter in the next, in our cold and flu, which is May, June, July this year. Because what happens in the Northern Hemisphere usually gets mirrored what happens in the Southern Hemisphere, you know, the next winter. So I, I look, but I don't want it to happen. I'm just going from the facts. Because last year I remember being interviewed and predicted basically what happened, what happened in Victoria. I said, I don't want it to happen, but you're locking, this is back in March. So we're locking everyone back down then, right? And it was a severe, I said, look, you're doing all this stuff now, all this economic damage now. And I said, what happens if we get struck later on in the year? Well, certainly, well, that's what happened. We not only, and we had two things driving the Victorian uh, second wave. We had an escape from a quarantine hotel and we had an infall from space. Those, those, those two factors were driving the, the, the whole epidemic in Victoria. <laughs> it's just extraordinary. I, I have to tell you, uh, this is a lot to take in, especially when you are... Um, your, your views are certainly something that I have never... Oh, 180 degrees, yeah, to what you really not heard. Um, yeah. But I respect you as a scientist, so... Well, why, I would, well, why would I make it up? I, there's, I, there's, I, no, there's, there, there's no gain for me now at my life. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, I'm yeah. just observing the data. Right, right. Well, you're going to have to give me. Uh, you're going to have to give me and our listeners uh, some time to digest all of this. This is a, a seriously huge, um, uh, well, proverbial bomb that you've dropped on us in terms of uh, well, viewpoints. I can, I can send you all the URL links to our papers if, if people want to go and just read the, read our papers. Well, if you do, I'll. I'll, I'll in, uh, in, in, in a, they're all in scientific journals. Yeah. Some of them are in rapid. You know, publication because we want to get it out real fast, and others are in peer-reviewed, you know, journals. Right. Uh, but uh, I've got the list. I can, I can, I can, I can send you the the whole set of URL links to our papers and letters. Yeah. What are, What have the politicians said about this? Have you, well, have you... we've been working overtime on them. <laughs> <laughs> we 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 got into the cabinet room: Morrison, Dutton, Hunt, and Frydenberg. Right at the start. Wow. Through powerful people in the Liberal Party and supporters of this, you know, ones who actually believe what, what, we're, what we've analysed. They didn't want a bar of it. They just openly rejected it. We don't want a bar of it. So they, they've, they've known for over 12 months what this story is and we've repeatedly tried to penetrate. Now, the mainstream media, the Australian got it in the first week of February. But the first story, the first outline of the story, I was dealing with the editor and I spent a week discussing it with him and he was reacting a bit like you're reacting now and he wanted the evidence for the media right and all that and I took him through that. And then he said, look, I'm going to hand it over to Natasha Robinson, our health writer. Well, she turns out to be a vapid airhead. And if she wants to... Hit me for defamation, she's happy to. The point is, oh, he mangled it. I said, because I, I told her, I said, listen, she said, oh, well, I must check. I said, look, before she even said that, I said, look, 
to them verbally and in writing, I said, you, if you go and check any of my peer reviewers in Australia, they will do two things. They will, they will my name, they will immediately damn me for my name, for who I am, and, and secondly, reject it outright without even thinking about it. So I said, there's no point in you going to get this to peer review. Just get the alternative narrative published. So, so it's out there in the public domain which people can get their heads around, you know, as an alternative explanation to what's going on. You know what they did? They'd set it out for fear of you, got back and said, no one agrees with your ideas and spiked it. But that's exactly what I said would happen. Mm. So we got, we've been actively suppressed by the Australian since the first week of February last year. As I've been trying multiple attempts to enter the Australian, and it's been flatly uh, rejected. Interesting. And, and, uh, but I have other people in the background who have worked with the Australian who find it all understandable but can't afford to pop their head above the parapet. Oh, there's a lot of fearful people out there too. Yes, no doubt, no doubt. Oh, there's a whole bunch of them who are fearing for their careers. Yeah. So, so listen, um, there are a lot of factors involved here. So, so to answer your question, why haven't you heard about it? Well, that's part of the reason. There's an, I mean, an active, a lockstep between the government and the media not to let give this story any ventilation. Mm. Now, We've got into the scientific media, for sure, and papers, and we've certainly got into uh, YouTube interviews, you know, had moderate uh, viewerships, 30, 20, 30, 30,000 through that Adams North uh, uh, program. But that's it. We haven't been able to get beyond that. Mm. In other words, I have to say there is a conspiracy <laughs> to give this story no oxygen. Now, the other interesting thing is, this is important too, we are not being dismissed as conspiracy theorists, as fanatics, as idiots. It's just the, the rule is no oxygen. Full stop. So, well, you've had some oxygen on this uh, this podcast. Uh, it has been an un, unedited. Uh, it will be an unedited, unfiltered um, expose mm. of your ideas in relation to this. Uh, I'm I'm going to be intrigued to see if we get any feedback on this. Uh, uh, because, well, you might just get incredulous silence. You've uh, you've knocked me for six. Um, I, I'm still I still haven't got past alien life forms because you know my entire life uh, and, and interest in astronomy has always been we're searching for extraterrestrial life. We haven't found it yet. And you just come on this podcast and say, "Well, it's been there the whole time." Oh, oh yeah, I oh, know. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. Look. The reason we got into it, the reason I got into it was that I already, in the previous five years before COVID, was reviewing all that evidence. And for us, it was, a, it was an academic exercise of going through the evidence. We never in our wildest dreams, when COVID struck, I didn't imagine I would be at the front line of having to sell it as a real viable. Uh, <laughs> up until then, it was all academic. We were just shifting from here, here, some mistakeable evidence. And I'll give you an example of how unaware we were uh, in December 2019, this would have been two months after that meteorite struck China and was dropping all its load all over, all over China. We had a, we had a, a one-day seminar in Melbourne, which we organised for the 80th birthday of Chandra Wickramasi for all his work, you know, 50 years' work on cosmic biology and panspermia. And a few of us got together and we, and we all presented papers and it was his, that was his birthday celebration in, in Australia. And we, all of us now reflect on the fact, little did we know, that it had already struck China 
COVID was going to envelop us, as we saw within the month. And here with this sleepy little seminar, this day tribute to Chandra's 80th birthday, we would be engulfed working on COVID. That was the last thing on our minds. Because we at, at that seminar, we went through all this evidence I just told you about, the media rights, the, the spectral, you know, the dust from the, uh, the, the, the data from the comets, the interstellar dust, all the other evidence, all the other evidence from disease from space in the past. We're just going through it all. It just, and it doesn't make sense by a terrestrial origin. Any of it makes a lot of sense if it's come from outside. The, then the next issue is how, how old is life in the universe? That's a really good point. And that's why it intersects with these ideas of religion. You see, there is no ultimate answer now. Mm. It has to be billions, you know. It has to be as old as the universe, it seems to me. Life and the universe it came into being together. Now, the next issue is, did it start with a big bang or has it always been there? You see why it's so important now to consider these real big ideas? Because if it's always been there, then life is part of the fabric of the universe. Ted, I think we're going to have to leave it there on that note. Uh, yeah. Fascinating uh, discussion with you. Uh, fascinating to learn uh, from you. Uh, I loved your territory story. I loved talking to you about your history in Darwin and, and yeah. growing up here. Yeah. Uh, and, and then that huge segue into COVID. It's been fantastic. Uh, I'm really... Well, that's only been a small part of my scientific career because I was uh, with all these other mechanisms, you know, that uh, Lamarckian mechanisms of life life on Earth, but quite apart from the universe. So anyway, that's been a very small part of my scientific... It's the 50th of my scientific career, actually, COVID. Well, uh, we'll, we'll, have to get, we'll have to get you back on and, and discuss uh, other aspects of your career. <laughs> yeah, because... <laughs> that was it, I thought it was over. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, what I'll do, I'll send you that list of all the URL links and people can go at their leisure and, and, and read all our papers over the past 12 to 18, 18 months and they can see that I'm not, you know, it's certainly just didn't something I've made up or I'm just talking through my hat. It's all based on hard evidence and facts, temporal, you know, genetic, temporal, astrophysical, epidemiologic, all those sort of facts that are all laid out. It's a, it's a really compelling story. That's right, the, right. And your title is professor, is that right? Yeah, well, I rose to associate professor. Associate professor, but everyone, right. Everyone's promoted me over the years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but, but even, even when I was associate professor, I was called a professor as well. So yeah. Right. Well, for the record, that was associate professor Ted Steele on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms or go to territorystory.com. The Territory Story Podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.